0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So in 1995, the uh, singer Joan Osborne debuted with a single that was, became a huge hit called One of Us. Um, and now I know that I'm, I'm well known for... Um, very current cultural references, but just appease me because I haven't left the 90s. Um, but, but if you are, if you're, if you're a little bit older, you know, at least like at the 40 range, you probably know the song even if you don't know the singer or the name of the song. The, uh, the chorus, I'm not going to sing it because I can't sing, but the chorus for the song goes like this. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus, trying to make his way home. Back up to heaven all alone. Nobody calling on the phone, except for the Pope, maybe in Rome. There's a lot of different interpretations and reactions to this song. Uh, Some saw it as this this brilliant religious statement. Others saw it as sacrilegious and and more challenging. But, but, But it received great critical acclaim. But then the writer of the song, who wasn't Joan Osborne, but was a songwriter, Eric Bazilian, whenever he was asked about this song, he he claimed that he actually is not religious, that there was actually no religious agenda whatsoever for this song. But he said instead that he, 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 the song came from a, a thought that came to him. About the paradigm shift, how things would, would radically shift if we changed how we thought about the ultimate the divine, or as he said, if you will, God. And I think he is right. I love a quote from A.W. Tozer. I quote it uh, quite often, but he had said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is one of the most important things about us. See, there's a challenge when it comes to this concept or idea of God. Because God itself is a term that, that is pretty generic. It's somewhat actually meaningless of a term. I mean, that's where, like, if you ask the question of, of do you believe in God? Okay. But what is actually more telling is instead the question of what God do you believe in? And what is he like? I think it's similar on the flip with those who are skeptics, those who are atheists. Because the question is not just, um, do you deny the existence of God? But what is this God that you deny? Because what I found interesting is with with friends and family members and and, and those that I encounter that that are skeptics, agnostic, or or atheists that deny the existence of God. When I ask them about the God they deny, I I, I could turn to them and say, you're in good company with me because I deny that God too. I don't think he exists. Because of their conception of God. And so this idea of trying to comprehend the nature of God, we have theologians and philosophers that, that, that have written many theses and many academic papers and works, working through the attributes of God. We have a number of theological books that have the different attributes of God. And, 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 and this idea of trying to speculate and trying to make sense of, of all the different divine attributes and nature of God is, 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 is good. And it can be fun, you know mental game if you're kind of into that type of thing, but the nature of God is not just important for us to have good doctrine, have good doctrinal categories. It's not just good (coughs) for theological argumentation or getting published in an academic journal. But see, understanding the nature of God is critical for how we live. It's critical to our life of faith. And that is especially true when we find ourselves in very dark and challenging moments. In our epistle lesson, we have Peter in this time between two advents. Peter writing to a church that is beginning to lose hope, a church that is becoming quite discouraged. Peter is writing to a church that is facing increasing persecution, and he's writing to a church wondering where God is. Wondering why Christ has not returned as he had said. See, this letter was written roughly 35 years after the resurrection and ascension. And if you read before what we read today in, in, in our bulletin reading, at the beginning of, of chapter 3, we see that Peter is addressing those whom he calls scoffers. Those who are ridiculing and mocking the church in their persecution and their despair, saying, Where is your Jesus? Thought he was coming back. Here, let me check. Nope, still not there. And mocking and ridiculing them. And we see that he responds to that in many ways by reminding the church of the second th- advent, but in that, the real nature of our God. In particular, God That God is infinitely unique, that God is patient and gracious, and God is a redemptive judge. So I just want to quickly look at each of those points as we see in our, our epistle reading. First, God as infinitely unique. In verse 8, we read, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So as Joan Osborne ruminates, what if God was one of us? Peter emphasizes to the church that God is not like any of us. He's wholly separate and unique. It says that for God, a thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years. Just to to note, this is not intended to be taken as a, a mathematical, literal statement. Actually, in the, in the Middle Ages, uh, a, a theologian had, had taken it that way and then used this 1,000 years to a day to then calculate within Scripture the age of the earth and then came to the conclusion that it's 6,000 years based upon the, the six days of creation and everything else. But that's not what Peter is doing here. He's actually using a figure of speech that is drawn from Psalm 90. It reads, before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday or but as a day when it is past. He's hearkening back to this psalm. A psalm that's attributed to Moses, a psalm that is set within the deserting wanderings of the people of Israel, who themselves would have been crying out how long? When will we come to the promised land? And if you read that psalm, what the psalm is emphasizing in their situation is that God is not like man. That God is eternal. That God is beyond and greater than any of our categories or our perception and our reality. While man is temporal, man is fleeting. So this is essentially a way of saying that God is holy and separate. Holy meaning set apart, that he is completely holy. Holy. Completely set apart. He is not like any of our categories of the way that we think of and interact within our world. He is outside of the confines of space and time. The God is not bound or limited by our temporal reality. What I find is, is profound in, in many ways is, is that Scripture, in a sense, had, had a, a, a sense Of the theory of relativity long before Einstein, who came up with it in the beginning of the 20th century. I'm not going to explain Einstein's theory because I don't really fully understand it. Um, But you know the the theory, you know, E equals MC squared. And it has to do with this reality of, (laughs) in the theory of relativity, what he concluded is that time is tied to space. And this weird thing about it, the faster you go and the closer you get to the speed of light, the slower the time is based upon, based upon your, your perspective. Everything's relative to your frame of reference. But within that, the, 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 what's wild is that they've actually done tests and shown that it's true with our modern technology. But if you ex- extract that even further, the idea that philosophers and, and theologians have come to recognize is that if you are outside, if you are above space, above the material and physical world, that then you are also outside of time in the way that time works for all of us. That's as far as I will explain it. <laughs> And if anybody here is a physicist, please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But so what? What is happening here is we are getting a glimpse of a God that is so grand, so beyond our frame of reference—a God that is not like us, a God not bound by the limitations of time, not being hindered or delayed. He's not a God that has anxiety or uncertainty. And he shares this with the people to comfort the people who are crying out, where are you? Why are you delaying? Why have you not shown up? He's revealing that God's seeming delay was not as the scoffers would claim that somehow God is impotent. He's delaying because he's incapable. Because something is, is hindering him or delaying him. Instead, it is that God is so great, so sovereign, so wholly other, that we cannot begin to comprehend God's frame of reference. Or as Isaiah spoke, God's ways are not our ways. And so there's a danger, a danger that we all, I think, can fall into, which is the tendency to make God like us. I like this statement from Mark Twain. He's one of the wittiest writers of all time. But Mark Twain wrote, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. Yeah. So we so often think of God as a more powerful version of us using theological terms for for history, we we contend into the Manichaean heresy. With the Manichaean heresy is the idea that somehow you have two equal forces. You have God and you have Satan, or you have God and you have evil. And God needs us to be that tipping point, because he's kind of just like a greater version of us, but he needs our help. And so in that, it's kind of still uncertain, and he's working really hard at it, but let's hope he wins. That is not the picture of our God. But when we begin to bring God into the confines of our world and limitations that can become especially dangerous in the face of evil, in the face of great trials. So First Peter reminds the church that God is infinitely other he is not like us secondly this will be more brief is is God's complete otherness actually would not be uh, necessarily comforting on its own because God's holy otherness could mean that he is distant and aloof he's so separate he's so other that he is outside of our realm and so in that maybe his delay is just because he doesn't care But Peter goes on to note that God is also patient because he is gracious. In verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I had mentioned about this last week, and so I'll be brief, but... What Peter is saying is what, from our perspective, what from our frame of reference, feels like God is aloof, that God doesn't care. Peter points out that actually the delay is because God does deeply care. God's patience, God's enduring of evil, is because of God's amazing grace, His mercy. When we're facing tribals, when, we're, when we're, we're wracked and overwhelmed with the reality of evil, when, we're, when, when we have those moments where we're like, why can this still remain? Where are you, God? What, why, do you, why do you tarry? Why do you delay? We need to be reminded that God is beyond our com- comprehension. His ways are not our ways. But also that even though we may not be able to understand it, God is not only sovereign, he is merciful and gracious. As the scriptures say, he's slow to anger. God is patient because God is redeeming us. And we see this at the heart of our faith. Once we get into Holy Week. Good Friday was not good for the first disciples of Jesus Because on that Saturday, they were looking at the face of horrific evil and wondering, where are you, God? Why would you allow such an atrocity to occur? Why would you allow your servant to be crucified? But then on Easter, they began to understand why. Because of God's grace. Working in and through the evil and the darkness. And finally, this leads to to the final point where Peter reminds us here is that God is a righteous judge and will finally and fully deal with evil and corruption. See this in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it. Will be exposed. Uh, this is a hard verse, and I'm not going to break down everything about it. I'd love to have a conversation about it. But it is a verse that is often misunderstood, thinking that this is speaking of, of a description of what was going to happen where God in his wrath is going to just destroy everything. But I think we often miss what Peter is communicating because we confuse the genre of litter that, literature that he is drawing upon. Just like the thousand years is a day, Peter is pointing back to Old Testament imagery. Actually, Old Testament apocalyptic language. And if you understand Jewish apocalyptic language, it has symbolic and significant meaning. And this imagery is tied to this idea of what he speaks of, which is the day of the Lord, which is a theme that we see over and over again. See, initially, as we read, it it appears that Peter is describing God in his wrath, destroying everything. But that should cause us to ask the question, why is God so mad at everything he created and called good? And secondly, is Peter contradicting or challenging Paul's teaching? Paul teaches that God is renewing and liberating his creation. Like he proclaimed in Romans 8, where he says the creation is waiting and groaning for the revealing of the sons of man. That then creation itself might be liberated. It might be redeemed. And I don't think that Peter is trying to counter Paul because in this very passage, he equates Paul's writings on this subject as Scripture. So, a few just really quick points, I think, to help understand a bit of what Peter is describing. First, this imagery of fire, when you look within the Old Testament, um, fire is often depicting God's presence and his judgment, but a purifying judgment. Most commentators agree that Peter is like, likely has in mind Malachi 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you in judgment. In Peter's first letter, he uses the imagery of fire. He uses the imagery of fire coming down upon each and every one of us. The imagery of being purified, of being refined. There's also the idea of of things being dissolved. The Greek word for that is luo, which can mean dissolved, but actually the primary use of the term is to untie, to set free, and liberate. And we do see at the end of 10 that all of this fire, all of this dissolving or liberating is to expose the earth and the works. That there is still creation that is being exposed by these things. And finally, the language of new heavens and new earth. It's language that comes from Isaiah in which Isaiah is speaking of a new age of God's righteous reign and speaking of a restored Jerusalem, but not a destroyed Jerusalem. It's the same, similar language to what Paul uses when he speaks of new creation, a term that he uses about you and I, that in Christ we are new creation. And That doesn't mean that We are utterly destroyed and we cease to exist and then a semblance of us is made, but it's not us anymore. It's the idea that in Christ we are so radically transformed, we are so radically made new that we can be spoken of as new creation. And also we see the end of Revelation with the new heaven and new earth, that language again. Where we see creation radically changed, made new. We see heaven coming down and fully uniting with earth. We see that the realm of God's full presence is here and on earth. So why does this matter? It matters because... First, we see that that Peter is depicting God as a righteous judge and he's reminding God's people that though it seems he tarries, he will deal with evil, corruption, and perversion once and for all. But his judgment and wrath is a redemptive wrath. A judgment that doesn't admit any level of defeat from Satan and our rebellion. But is redeeming All that he created good. Burning away and destroying all that might pervert it. So that he does not lose one bit of what he created good. It matters because I think too often when we begin to just think that God is just going to wipe everything out, destroy everything. It can create a mentality where we just hunker down hide in our enclaves, try to rescue a few souls, and just wait for it all to burn. But that's not what Peter concludes. Instead, after saying that, he concludes that that reveals to us that how we live, how we interact within this world, matters. Because matter matters to God. He's redeeming our physical bodies and our souls. But also, it's a reminder to the church that this purifying judgment of God, the exposing of evil and corruption and removing of it, the radically remaking of creation, making of a new creation that is, that is removed from all that is that is facing us now, the dark, the evil, the corruption, the pain, the suffering, all that the church in Peter's time were crying out for is something that God will do in an instant as a thief in the night. What it does is it frees us from anxiety and worry because God is wholly other. God is greater than us. God is greater, and yet that God that is not bound like we are is also a God who is judge. He will put things right. It frees us also from playing judge. The scripture says, judgment belongs to the Lord. It is in God's hand, and it is God who will do it. So in this time between Advents, in this time in which the church is facing discouragement and doubts, Peter reminds the church of the nature of our God. Not to just provide good theological categories, but to provide a paradigm shift that transforms how we live and walk in faith. That they might not be carried away, as he said, caused to lose their stability, to lose their grounding, but instead that in light of that we might grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what I find is most profound is that Peter points to the nature of God in his second advent in light of the first advent that all that he is saying is in the context of the first advent. So to return to Osborne's question, what if God was one of us? As profound as he was. The God who is infinitely other, beyond our comprehension and our frame of reference, the one who is patient and gracious and sovereign judge, Of all things. Became one of us. Took on flesh. Dwelt in our midst. In the person of Jesus. But. He was definitely not a slob like one of us. (laughs) And he's not just trying to make his way home but instead he's redeeming us through his blood and preparing to bring his home to us. When when the dwelling place of God will be with man, heaven and earth will be reunited, evil and corruption destroyed in his fiery presence, making all things new in which the perfect righteousness of God covers the land. May we in this Advent season Delight and be grateful for God's patience. And also, let us be secure in the certainty of the hope of the second advent. God will deal with the corruption and the evil that is attacking and destroying us and destroying his good world. Because God is a redemptive, sovereign judge. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons, and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. The mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. The joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. From the first to the